As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. One semester of law school. One semester of criminal justice. Two experts. I'm Kristen Caruso. I'm Brandi Egan. Let's go to court. On this episode, I'll talk about Nazi saboteurs. And I'll be talking about a murder mystery. Oh. Oh. Let's start by saying... That I have a flap of skin hanging off the roof of my mouth (laughs) and it's going to impede the way I talk, I swear. So we just went out to dinner, and you had this weird look on your face. You were doing something crazy. I was like, what's wrong? I got too excited about my sandwich, chicken parm sandwich, delicious, by the way. But I got too excited when it came, took a big bite, burnt the shit out of the roof of my mouth, and now I have a flap of skin just hanging down. So the reason she was making a weird face was because she was playing with her skin flap with her tongue. (laughs) How dare you talk about my skin flap? You brought it up. Um, In case you couldn't tell, this is an episode of Let's Go to Court. After After Dark. Dark. (laughs) Uh, Brandy had other business. Do you want to say what my other business was yesterday? No, you can say what you are doing. I was getting tattooed. That's right. Yes. My face... Right on her arm. Huge on my forearm. And she's like doing this like wink. I look great. And then you can see her tongue playing with the skin flap in her open (laughs) mouth. (laughs) You'll never regret getting that. So, yeah, because you had your second session on your tattoo. Yeah. We are getting together in the evening time. That's right. So it's going to be wild. It's going to be crazy. Are you waiting for me to start? Yes, I am. (laughs) What? What are you doing? Um, I'd also like to mention that my mouth is fully on the microphone <laughs> this week because I'm terrified that I'm going to be speaking too far away from it. I think Kristen is sabotaging me, guys. Okay, You've so- always been jealous of how loud I am. <laughs> <laughs> so the last two weeks in a row, we tried something new with the audio, and I kind of felt like it it was a little off, but like last week, I'm going to blame you and blame me. Yeah, it was a new audio thing, which I don't think is working. But also, you like I. It sounds as if I was rocking back and forth in my chair because sometimes I was close and then sometimes I was way back here. <laughs> it felt like we were talking to the old Country Time Lemonade guy. He was sitting on his <laughs> rocking rocker. chair telling us about a crime. <laughs> so this time. Brandy's going to pretend like we're recording a podcast. That's oh, right. And I'm going to pretend my chin is glued to the microphone. <laughs> you look so uncomfortable right now. Do I? Do you want a pillow? To no. Stick behind? You know what? My mom, honest to God, suggested that I get a book for you and stick it behind your back. 
she insinuating that I have terrible posture? She was saying that you were too far from the mic. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Don't hmm. appreciate that, Sherry. <laughs> <laughs> I will maintain that I believe Kristen was sabotaging me. <laughs> what if my goal has been just to slowly... <laughs> you just, like, phase me out completely? And it's just me telling one story and then reacting to another one that no one hears. <laughs> Hashtag Team Kristen. <laughs> you know what we've gotten a lot of since uh, last episode came out? What? Hashtag Team Peanut. Yeah, she barked, yeah. rudely interrupted the podcast, but people didn't seem to mind. Nope. You know, the other thing people always comment, comment on is how we don't have long, crazy intros. And we, this is the longest intro we may have ever done. So let's hop to it. I don't think that well, that grammar was correct. Well, you know, it's after dark. You will know, euthanasia me, it's fine. <laughs> Okay, now that's taking me off track. <laughs> yes, yeah, so we were we were texting about the audio on the last episode, and I was like, "Yeah, um, there is definitely a part where you can tell that I'm talking away from my microphone because I'm a fucking idiot and whatever." And I said, "Sorry," and Kristen was like, "It's fine, <laughs> but I'm gonna have to euthanasia you." <laughs> and then you responded a minute later, "I believe the term is euthanize." <laughs> And I laughed so hard, it felt so good. Kristen's dumb. a writer, guys. <laughs> Weird how I'm struggling to get an agent, though. <laughs> All right, down to business. Okay, down to business. It's March 7th, 1986. Is it? Yes. We're in Miami, Florida. It is, in fact, pronounced Miami, <laughs> not Miami, because it's not fucking Oklahoma. Uh huh. It's 5 15 a.m. I'm going to pause already Why? to say that the majority of this information comes from an article for the crime library by mm. my dude, my good friend, in my mind only, he doesn't know who I am, uh-huh. David Krajicek. I've used a lot of his articles. <laughs> big fan. Big, big fan of my boy Dave. I don't know if he likes to be called Dave. <laughs> You're just getting real from that. You know what he does like, though? What? Tiramisu. That's right, because he's a So, okay, we're in Miami, Florida. It's March 7th, 1986. I am cooking away in my mother's womb. Ew. (laughs) I was not yet born. You were. Yeah. Because you're older. (laughs) Uh, Not by much, Missy. (laughs) And people have said that I look months younger than you. You jerk. We get a lot of emails. I just Everybody don't cast says them my off. ears are way cuter than yours. <laughs> well, I, I can't argue with that. It's 5.15 a.m. Joyce Cohen called 911. She was hysterical. So hysterical, in fact, that the dispatcher couldn't make out what the emergency was. Finally, Joyce got out that her husband, Stanley, had been shot. When police arrived at the Cohen home in the pricey, and historic Coconut Grove Coconut Grove neighborhood, mm. they found 52-year-old Stanley Cohen naked and dead in bed. He had suffered multiple gunshot wounds to the head. Wow. So, side note, Coconut Grove is like the, um, holds like the record for the longest consistently inhabited 
town in Florida or something like that. That's a really That's lame record. A, that is that fact is thirty eight percent true. <laughs> <laughs> it's such a lame fact though. Even bother. But it's like it's a really well to do area, very upscale, and lots of his, beautiful historic homes. And the Cohen home was a historic home that overlooked Biscayne Bay, which we've talked about Biscayne Bay before on this podcast. Ritzy. <laughs> Is it slightly nicer than Kansas City? <laughs> nicer than your current neighborhood. Uh-huh. Maybe not nicer than the new neighborhood. Uh-huh. You guys, um, Norman and I, assuming everything goes to plan, in like two weeks' time, we're moving on new up. New house. More than one bathroom. Ooh, you get a bathroom and you get a bathroom. And that's where the list is. <laughs> so she's called the police. Police get there. Stanley's dead. When Joyce managed to gain her composure a little bit, she told the police that Stan had been upstairs asleep because it's 5.15 in the morning. And but that she had been up late, busy with a charity project in a downstairs room. Um, she'd been sorting through clothes for a charity garage sale. They had a the couple had a pet Doberman Pinscher, and it was asleep with her in the room. And then suddenly, she had been startled by a loud noise. The dog had gotten up and started so, to bark. On. So she was doing her charity thing, sorting through clothes, mm-hmm. and then she fell asleep in the other room. Is that what she said? No, no, no. She was awake. She was still up. At five fifteen in the morning, she was staying up late. I think that's just a weird fucking thing to say. Why didn't you say I was up early? Unless she's telling the truth and she's like, I stayed up all night. Which we might find out <laughs> is true. Okay. <laughs> Trying to explain your gestures? You did a little, a little sniffly. A little sniffly. It's the 80s and they're wealthy. I don't know what you're Joyce, trying to say. Joy, we're going to find out later that Joyce has a bit of a cocaine habit. Oh, okay. So she's all bumped up on coke. <laughs> doing charity work. <laughs> See, drugs aren't all bad. <laughs> I'm just like picturing the scene in Horrible Bosses when they've spilled the coke all oh, over the floor and that they're trying yes. to like pick dust out of it. It's like, I feel like we're really good at this. <laughs> I'm going to do push-ups. <laughs> so she tells the police that she has been up all night working on this charity project. She was in a downstairs room, stands upstairs asleep. All of a sudden, she hears a loud noise. The dog gets up and starts barking. Um, so she... Kind of went out of the bedroom, kind of crept around the corner and went towards the sound and like just caught a glimpse of two shadowy figures running out of the house. Hmm. So here's the interesting thing. The Cohen home is a historic mansion, as I mentioned. Do you have an address? I don't have an address. Damn it, Brandy. I'm very sorry. Okay, it's okay. Uh... Picture like a, I've seen, I've seen a picture of one view of the house. Picture like a tile roof, a white mm-hmm. house, like big like windows and a big like lanai that overlooks the bay. Gotcha. Okay. I called it a lanai because it's the South and Golden Girls. <laughs> <laughs> Just whatever Blanche would say. Uh, in the Dexter series, the books, Dexter lived in Coconut Grove. Those were books? Yeah, it was books before it was the show. I had no idea. Wow, Kristen's a writer, guys. (laughs) You say that sarcastically one more time. (laughs) 
Um, so she she's going towards the sound. She sees, you know, these men, whatever. So the interesting thing about this house is that it's a mansion and it is very finely furnished. Like she has decked this place out. Tons of expensive stuff. There's also lots of money in the house and a shit ton of coke. Because as I mentioned, Joyce has quite the coke habit. Okay. But they hadn't bothered to look for any of this. They hadn't taken any of it. Nothing was missing. This crime was not a robbery. If Joyce was telling the truth, someone had come into the house for the express purpose of killing Stanley Cohen. Mm-hmm. Someone wanted him dead. Mm-hmm. But who? I mean, it's a real who done it. <laughs> You have do you have a prediction right off the bat, Kristen? No, I don't have a prediction. I just think this whole thing is very fishy. Hmm. I yeah, I think it's real fishy off the bat that she's up at five fifteen in the morning, all coked up doing charity work. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, what do you do at five fifteen? I sleep. <laughs> no, I I do think it's it's pretty convenient that she's not in the room when he's murdered. Hmm. So. I'll get into this more a little bit later, but there are problems in the Cohen marriage. They're sleeping in separate bedrooms. Wow. So to figure out who wanted Stanley dead, we kind of need to see a little bit about more who Stan was. Stan was a self-made man. He was the oldest of four children. He was born in New York, grew up on Long Island, and then his family had moved to Florida when he was 14. He graduated from high school in Miami, and then he went on to earn a degree in civil engineering from the University of Florida. Hmm. He married really young, had a couple of kids, named them Gary and Jerry. Oh, no. (laughs) (laughs) And then took like a management job with a construction firm. He was very successful at that and kind of took steps from there and eventually started his own company when he was like 30 years old. It's awesome. He called it Sack Construction Company. <laughs> Why is that funny to you, Brandy? No. Hmm. Um, but he named it after himself. His name's Stanley Allen Cohen and he named it SAC Sack. Oh, he should have just called it Stanley Construction, <laughs> right? Or Cohen Construction. Anything. I like that he called it Sack Construction. <laughs> so, he started that in 1963. Between 1960 and 1980, the population in Florida doubled. It went from 5 million to 10 million. Holy crap. And the Miami area specifically transformed into this like really cool, like bustling area where everyone wanted to be when it had previously had this reputation of like where old Jewish men go to retire and die <laughs> like just the men yes like that was kind of the reputation huh okay and so kind of in the middle of that boom he starts his own construction company and they were able to really capitalize on that population boom um sack construction company specialized in commercial construction so strip malls hospitals government buildings warehouses what whatever. else would qualify as commercial construction um uh, gas stations. Oh, please make this malls, exhaust. Uh, airports. Uh-huh. Uh huh. Okay, fine. <laughs> I could 
keep going, Kristen. I don't know. You seem to be spinning I out. I was slowing down. <laughs> <laughs> so as they took on all of these projects, um, Stan kind of became just like the overseer. He was the boss, and they had a lot of projects going at one time, but he managed to kind of keep an eye on everything. He visited multiple job sites daily, and he was a really tough guy. He was like very big on quality, very big on not cutting corners. And it went well for him. His company continued to grow and be very successful. He also saw an opportunity during that population boom to um, kind of branch out from just construction. And he dabbled in real estate development. He grew his business and then side businesses to include tons of employees and dozens of projects across the state of Florida. And along the way, he got rich. While he was growing his business, uh, so like 10 years went by and he like cycled through some wives. He had three wives in 10 years. That's quite a cycle. That's quite a cycle. And he wasn't what you would call like a super handsome guy. This is how David described him. David Kradzchek, my buddy. Yeah. He wasn't a handsome man in the traditional sense. He was husky, balding, and well short of six feet. He had a broad smile that didn't quite compensate for his oversized facial features. Oh. <laughs> man. But but David always lays it on pretty thick. He does. He does. Yes. He's, yeah. But he was a commanding presence. And he was super confident and super engaging. Short guys, I'm telling you. He enjoyed the company of women. And he was never without, like, a woman on his arm at whatever event he was at. And what he lacked in sex appeal, his heavy wallet made up for. Well, did he have a good personality? Yeah, he was super, super friendly, super engaging. Yeah. Okay, okay. Yeah. But he was well short of six feet, Kristen. What could be grosser? I know. <laughs> I just think that's dumb. Like, is that the height that, like, all of a sudden you're super hot? I feel like in dating profiles, that's the cutoff. Oh. Don't you think? Maybe. I don't know. Anyway. Hang on. I have to get a cushion for my delicate butt. Your bony ass? Oh, how dare you? Our ass is important these days. Look at my sweet dog. Even though Stanley was well under six feet, which is apparently the deciding factor on whether you're hot or not, Mm -hmm. um, he had tons of women around him all the time. He was actually engaged to a woman who would have become his fourth wife when Joyce LeMay came into his life. He didn't have to go searching for her. At that time, Joyce was a separated single mother who was new to Miami, and she was working as a secretary at SAC Construction. Oh. Stan came into work one day, and there Joyce was. He introduced her to his circle of friends at a French restaurant in Miami one night in the fall of 1974, and she was 24 at the time. Oh, no. Don't. And he was 40. Gross. It's just a 16-year difference. Yeah, and he's engaged to another woman. Uh-huh. She's, he, 
She's just getting friendly with her. Yeah, yeah, that's great. Great. Keep going. Um, I love after it. that meeting, uh, Stan informed his fiance that their engagement was off. Oh. And a few weeks later, on December 5th, so they had this dinner meeting in the fall. And by December 5th, Joyce and Stan were married in an extravagant wedding at the Dunes Hotel in Las Vegas. He didn't learn many lessons, huh? He did not. Okay. No. All of a sudden, Joyce was given a life of opulence beyond what she could ever imagine. She'd grown up very poor in a suburb of Chicago. She had a rough life. Her dad was Mm -hmm. abusive. Um, Her mom ended up leaving her dad finally, and she actually went through a spell where she spent time in orphanages, uh, foster care, group homes. And during that time, she said that she suffered a lot of sexual and physical abuse. Finally, in 1964, an aunt of hers took her in and she got to stay there, I think, like from the time she was like 13 till she was 17 or something Mm -hmm. like that. So here's this young woman who needs a father figure, mm-hmm. and she meets this old dude. Mm-hmm. Great. He's 40. He's not an old dude. And she's how old? 24. Yeah, he's an old dude. He's not, like, old enough to be her dad. Technically, yeah, he get, he could be. <laughs> <laughs> um, So she stayed with his aunt until she was 17, and at that age, she left home and married another teenager um, named George. Uh, They had a son nine months later, and things sucked for them. They didn't have any money. They fought all the time about it. About five years into the marriage, they decided that they were going to move to Miami to try and get in on this construction boom that was happening there. Her husband, George, hung drywall. And so there was said to be lots of work there for him. And so they moved in 1973 to Miami. But less than a year later, the marriage was over and George headed back to Illinois and wow. left and left Joyce there in Miami. I mean, willingly. She stayed in Miami. Yeah, she, yeah. But he hated it and was like, I'm out of here. And so the marriage ended. And at that time, she got that job at Sat Construction. There's a chance that it's supposed to be pronounced SAC construction, but I'm not going to call it that. <laughs> Why would you when you can say sack a whole bunch? Okay, so this is how David Krajicek describes Joyce. She was young, pretty and petite at just five feet tall. Her raven hair and ochre eyes gave Joyce an exotic appeal. She was ambitious and well-spoken, despite modest education. Mm. She sounds like a Kardashian. She does kind of sound like a Kardashian. Mm -hmm. So she got married to Stan just 10 days after her divorce from George was finalized. And all of a sudden, Joyce had the life she had always desired. An author who wrote a book about this said something about... um, Right after they 
Joyce and Stan got married, she made this big like show of going back to the town that she was front that she was from, and she showed up in this luxury car and all of these fancy clothes and got out and bragged about how she'd married this millionaire and how she was going to be better than all of them. You know, okay, I know that's not nice, but it'd be awesome to do, right? (laughs) I'm just thinking, like, if you grew up in in that kind of situation. Yeah, in, like, a super abusive situation. Yeah. Yeah. You would come back in your designer clothes and be like, Yeah. What's up, bitches? Yeah. So... All of a sudden, Joyce had all the money in the world, and she had social connections that she never had dreamed of. They spent a ton, ton of time at the Miami Ski Club, which I can only assume is water skiing because it's Miami. <laughs> <laughs> no, they're so rich. <laughs> and then Stan was also very close with his fraternity brothers, and so they spent a lot of time with all of those people. And Stan put Joyce through interior design interior design school, something she'd always wanted to do. She had loved decorating and stuff, even from a very young age. I read in one article a story about how she'd always been very spendy, even when um, she had no money. Like mm-hmm. there was this there's this story about how she had when she was married to George, they lived in this very modest house, and she had spent like a hundred and sixty dollars in like. 1970 on which would be like thousands of dollars yeah adjusted for inflation on peacock feathers to put in an arrangement in the living room oh my god yes <laughs> <laughs> well and you so, have to have those i, I mean, mean that's a necessity yeah. who doesn't have an arrangement of peacock flowers in their home flowers peacock feathers <laughs> in their home Kristen made me a very strong drink before we record, started recording. I, I had Norman even like check to see if I put too much vodka in it. I'm sorry. It's very strong. Can't feel that skin flap anymore. <laughs> Thank God. It's terrifying to watch. Do you want more of the seltzer in there? No, it's great. Oh, you're just going to... Well, if I pass out before <laughs> the end of this, I guess it'll really be a murder mystery. <laughs> Um, so when they weren't spending their time at the Miami Ski Club, they liked to go on vacation. Stan's favorite place was Steamboat Springs in mm-hmm. Colorado. There are much ritzier places in Colorado. Yeah. He liked that it was super casual and down to earth and people didn't care that he had money. He liked that like everybody wore jeans and cowboy boots and whatever. And so he bought this big spread there, like 650 acres, and he called it Wolf Run Ranch. And then he, on that ranch, he put this elaborate cedar cabin. And then, because he lived in Miami, he was like, well, shit, we got to get back and forth from Miami to Colorado. So what did he do? Bought a plane. Bought a plane. Sure. Got to have a plane. totally understand this guy. You have to have a plane. (laughs) (laughs) Things were going well for the Coens. Like, they kind of, they made smart investments. Um, They bought land. They bought shopping centers. They bought restaurants. And it was the undertaking of building this elaborate home in Steamboat Springs took a long time. And by the time it was finished, the couple had been married about seven years. Mm-hmm. And things weren't going as well in the marriage anymore. Joyce began spending longer stretches of time by herself in Colorado, and she developed her own circle of friends there, including country singer Tanya Tucker. Oh, really? Yes. 
They be, they met at a bar one night and became good friends. About that same time, things had started to, as I mentioned, fall apart a little bit in the marriage. First, the couple's sex life went south. Mm-hmm. Uh, like, at the time of Stanley's death, uh, Joyce said that they hadn't had sex in, like, two years. Oh, wow. And I mean, he's only 54. Like, it's not like... Medically, there was a problem. <laughs> well, but I mean, if one of you's in Colorado and the other one's in Florida, it's going to be hard to bang. Uh, facts. <laughs> <laughs> but that wasn't the reason they weren't having sex. Actually, Joyce believed that Stan had started having an affair. Mm. And um, she constantly was on him about it, that she thought that he was banging this old flame of his while she was in Colorado. And he would deny it, and he'd say, you know, if you're so worried about it, come back. Like, maybe don't spend so much time away. Hmm. And also, Stan warned Joyce that she would leave the marriage the same way she entered it. Oh. With nothing. Fuck that. Did she sign a prenup? Um, there's no mention of a prenup. But that was his threat. Mm Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm Mm-hmm. And for Joyce, the idea of returning to her former life after a decade of living this yeah high-style lifestyle. I said style <laughs> twice, and I meant it. <laughs> really? Because you had regret in your eyes. No, you're misreading my <laughs> eyes. <laughs> she just couldn't, she couldn't fathom that. She couldn't go back to that. Yeah. But she started running her mouth. To her friends about how much easier her life would be if Stanley was dead. Oh, okay. Well, you know what? I think I've solved the murder mystery. Have you mystery. solved the murder mystery? <laughs> I don't mean to say that I'm a genius. But <laughs> <laughs> um, she apparently made this statement to multiple friends, multiple times, hmm. always under the influence of cocaine. Sure. And so people were like, oh. She's just all hopped up on that powder again. (laughs) She doesn't mean it. As I mentioned earlier, like, this was the time of, like, cocaine. Like, especially in Miami at this time, like, anybody who had a hundred bucks was doing coke. Also had cocaine. Also had cocaine, (laughs) yes. And it's said that Joyce was, like, never seen without sporting her cocaine mustache. Like, it was widely known that she was a big cokehead. Wow, Okay. And she didn't keep it a secret. She did it with her friends, including Tanya Tucker. Mm. Um, And a lot of times, like when she was in Miami, she'd tell Stanley goodnight. He'd go to bed and she'd leave and go out to some club and do coke in the bathroom, hang out in the champagne room. She was living it up. Am I missing out on something with cocaine? I have no idea. You think I've ever done coke, Kristen? No, I I know. We're both. <laughs> yeah, we're so- <laughs> you know, we took that dare pledge we, very, very seriously, seriously. <laughs> in fifth grade. <laughs> we're like, okay, we will never, never touch We will never stuff. touch anything ever. <laughs> we promise, Officer Lindquist. <laughs> that is who it was. That was his name. Although... I did have that edible one time. Uh-huh. And I told Norman, 
Do we have time for this? You threatened his life if he didn't get you. I didn't threaten his life. No, no, no. You threatened to divorce him if he didn't get you cookie cake? No. Pizza? Yes. (laughs) So, Norman and I, well, I, okay, I'll run this story by him. Yeah. But we both got high. I'd never done it before. Mm -hmm. I didn't realize, like, oh, maybe I should have, like, half the edible. So I took the same amount as Norman. Uh Uh-huh. High as a kite. Uh Uh-huh. For a long time, I thought it had no effect on me. And then I started thinking about the fact that my arms are very heavy and my tongue is very large. (laughs) And I realized, like, okay, I'm probably high. So then I went in bed and I wrapped up in the comforter, yeah, Uh like a burrito. And Norman came in and started laughing at me. And then he said something about how pizza sounded good. Yeah. And I got so angry because... <laughs> How dare you bring a pizza without having a pizza? Here's, here's why I was angry. It's because he does this sometimes. Uh-huh. He'll say, oh, hot wings sound so good right now. And then, you know, he'll put that thought into my head. Yeah. And then do nothing with it. And, like, I never say anything. Yeah. But then I was high. And so I sat up in bed and I said... If you do not order me a buffalo chicken pizza right now, I will divorce you. (laughs) And Brandy, we're still married. Uh, So he ordered that buffalo chicken pizza. Uh, Yeah, and it was delicious. (laughs) So when word of Stan's murder gets out, there are a few people who don't immediately come up with Joyce as a suspect. Uh huh. She had everything to gain from his death. And... By all accounts, Stan didn't have any enemies. So the fact that someone would break into his house with the express purpose of murdering him. Yeah, that seems. Yeah, it's not a great mystery. But the investigation got off to a rocky start. Less than an hour into the investigation at the Cohen home, Joyce ordered police off the premises. She was like, nope, get out of here. And they were forced to leave and go get a search warrant. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So they didn't get to, like, start. So it took until, like, late that afternoon for them to secure a search warrant and, like, actually get to. Wow. Yeah. What logic did she have? I don't know. Just like, well, I'm sick of this. Yeah. Maybe she wanted to go to bed. Maybe she's coming down off that high. Maybe she wanted to get rid of some evidence. Who knows? Maybe she wanted, yeah. Maybe she wanted to flush the coke in her house. (laughs) Like, I don't know. So at the time, the prosecutor um, who would be assigned to the case told police, this is the first time I've been asked to prepare a search warrant because the widow would not allow the police to come into her house and conduct a crime scene search. Yeah. And her behavior was super odd. And she became the prime suspect. But this wouldn't be an open and shut case there would be no quick resolution. Stan had been killed with four shots from a 38 caliber gun. One had grazed his scalp, two entered from the left side of his head, and one from the right. And police found the murder weapon pretty quickly. They found it that next afternoon in like an area of the yard where ferns were. So ferns are very leafy. <laughs> Thank you. And yes. So it was just like tucked in the yard with the ferns. And the murder weapon was Stan's own gun, a Smith and Wesson revolver. Uh-huh. 
Joyce told the police that Stan had had that gun on him the night uh, that he died. She had woken him up about midnight and said that she'd heard a noise and asked him to investigate. She said that he looked around the house, looked around the yard, but found nothing. And so Joyce thought that he'd probably left that gun on his nightstand after he returned to bed. And those two shadowy figures she saw in the house no. had used it to kill him. Yeah, no, Kristen, no, they'd come into the house without a weapon. Uh-huh. Yeah. Their As, only goal was to murder someone. Yeah, and they came they without came, a weapon. And they were like, wow, this oh is my so God, convenient. Oh my God, that gun is sitting there. What else would we do? <laughs> yeah, no. Inside the house, though, they found a couple of problems, a couple of pieces of evidence that caused problems with Joyce's statement. First, they found a tissue in a trash can that contained snot. Can't handle it. <laughs> Joyce's nose mucus, as David Krajicek put it. Ew. Why did he why did he say nose mucus? Oh God, I can't handle it. Has he had never heard the word snot? Oh, I can't handle oh, it either. We're talking about a murder. And this is the part you can't handle. I can't handle mucus. Ugh. <laughs> anyway, they found a used tissue. Uh huh. It was Joyce's tissue, cream filled. Oh God! <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry. But on that tissue, they also found gunpowder residue. Oh. Mm. Well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Another problem with her account came from an ear witness. <laughs> I have used this term before on this podcast and you gave me shit for it. That is legit what they called this person in this article. You know, when you think about it, it makes sense. Thank you. They didn't see it with their eyes. I will accept your apology. Brandy, I would like a cookie along with it, please. From the bottom of my broken snot. <laughs> Um, and this ear witness said that they had heard four gunshots, just as Joyce had said. Mm-hmm. But they heard them at 3 a.m. Okay. Joyce didn't call the police until... 5.15. That's correct. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, the medical examiner... I'm waiting for this to get mysterious. So far, this has not been mysterious at all. It's a murder mystery, Kristen. <laughs> You're going to have to throw in a red herring or something, because, mm. uh... Mm. Okay, okay. Mm. <laughs> so, the medical examiner got to work trying to determine the cause of death. Mm. And you know what they found? Uh, well, the cause of death was obviously being shot in the head. Time of death. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. I thought you said... I thought you said cause of death. <laughs> Maybe I did! I meant time of death. I... I honestly don't know what I said, but I meant time of death. I really. (laughs) (laughs) That'll be interesting to hear back. (laughs) I think it's very likely that I was being sassy and wrong all at once. (laughs) So cause of death. Four gunshots to the head. (laughs) Time of death. Time of death. 3 a.m. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she for sure did it. Really? What yes. about the two shadowy figures? That's bullshit. Is it? Yes. Oh, my, oh my God. God. <laughs> <laughs> what the hell was that? 
Well, I got a text message here on my computer, and I had the volume. I always have the volume turned off on this, but we were listening to The Lonely Island while we were getting ready. Because <laughs> we were very excited about the Netflix special. It's true. This is so awesome. excited that Kristen jizzed in her pants. <laughs> it's not my fault you were touching my butt. <laughs> This episode's a shit show. It is a shit show. So, Joyce hires herself a well-known Miami uh, defense attorney, um, and he immediately set up a lie detector test for Joyce because remember it's the eighties, and that's and like she was like, "I'd rather not." Thank you. She agreed to take it. Oh, but the first test was inconclusive, mm-hmm. so she took another one, mm-hmm. and it said she wasn't lying. Yeah, I case closed. Murder. No. Mystery. No. Who done it? Kristen. Joyce. For sure. <laughs> With the Smith and Wesson in the bedroom. <laughs> but police were like, yeah, we still think she did it. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm getting 800 text messages from my mom and sister that are not important in the least. Wow. They're going to hear this. I and know. And I think they will strongly disagree. What are they texting you? And we'll all decide. Uh, what's the name of that plus size swimsuit model? In Casey, that that's what? the question my mom said. And Casey sent a link to Google. <laughs> <laughs> and my mom said, "You're my Google." And Casey said, "Nope, it's after 10 p.m." <laughs> and so I responded, "Ashley Graham." Which is who my mom is referring to. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway. Mm -hmm. So Joyce is like, that's it. See, my lie detector test came back good. I didn't do it. Mm. And police were like, nope, we think you did it. And they weren't the only ones that thought she did it. So did me. Stan's children. Mm. Gary and Jerry. (laughs) So this by this time, Gary and Jerry are adults and Gary's a lawyer. Uh-huh. And Jerry's like a very well-known uh, TV reporter in South Florida. Okay. And so five days after the murder, they filed a $5 million wrongful death lawsuit against Joyce. Whoa. Yeah. And they um, also filed paperwork to block her from getting any part of Stan's estate, which would have been worth only about $2 million, actually. Really? Because it turns out that uh, Stan was in a lot of debt. Wow. Yeah. So his Why? net worth of the, t- like he'd taken on a lot of business debt. And so uh-huh. his name's all over that business. So he's responsible for that business debt. The boom had kind of like subsided and he yeah. was finding himself in some trouble. So yeah, when it all, when it all like worked out, it was going to be about $2 million. Wow. All that was left. I mean, still not bad, but no, still. nothing to, shake a stick at that's nothing that's to sneeze at shake a stick at no you say like enough money to shake a stick at right it's nothing to sneeze at <laughs> i don't know i right? can't say nothing to sneeze at Ugh. gross so what joyce do of course she responded with her own lawsuit she filed an 11 million dollar slander lawsuit oh, okay against them. okay everybody calm down <laughs> um both suits were dismissed yes but the investigation completely stalled out. There was nothing else to go on. They couldn't prove that Joyce had done anything. 
And so... You're kidding me. No. They didn't have enough evidence. Fingerprints on the gun. Nope. Investigators, detectives, whatever, they firmly believed that Joyce did this. But they weren't willing to risk losing the case to a jury by rushing forward with charges without solid proof. Okay, yeah. So they sat and they waited and they waited and they sat (laughs) and they they thought that they could get a break Uh because they believed that maybe someone else really was involved. They thought maybe she had hired someone to carry this out. Yeah. Yeah. Someone would talk eventually. Uh Uh-huh. And they were right. Eventually, they got a call from a man named Frank Zuccarello. Zuccarello. He was part of a home invasion gang that uh, broke into mansions uh, in the Miami area. And he had been arrested for robbery just four days after Stan's murder. He was facing a long prison sentence. And uh, he thought it might be the perfect opportunity for him to come forward and see if he could work a little deal. Yeah. Say what he knew about that Cohen murder. He told police. So he like calls up the prosecutor and he's like, I've got some information. Why don't you come? Why don't you come see me in prison? And uh, let's see what we can work out. And so he told them that uh, Joyce had hired him and two others from his robbery gang, Thomas Joslin and Anthony See, <laughs> Caracciolo. <laughs> Caracciolo. Oh, yeah. That's definitely it. <laughs> he hired the first. C A R A C C I O L O. Caracciolo. Give him a kick in the Caracciolo. <laughs> or the sack, whatever you want to say. Either one. Uh, she, he said that she had provided the gun, a sketch of the house, so that the killers could easily make it to Stanley's bed. And on the night of the murder, she turned off the alarms, alarm system, locked up the Doberman, and left a sliding door open so that they could easily get in the house. Well, there you have it. He said that they were paid with $100,000 worth of cocaine. Wow. Yes. See, don't you wonder what that looks like? Yeah. Like a Domino's bag of sugar? I, I mean, have or more than that? No I don't idea. Know. I don't have a clue. Boy, you I are mean, really it did, I guess it depends on if it's cut or uncut, right? How much baby laxative is in there? See, you taught me about the baby laxatives. <laughs> <laughs> For like a month, authorities tried to piece this case together and get uh, Thomas and Anthony to talk. But they wouldn't say anything they wouldn't implicate joyce they wouldn't give any information and in september of 1988 they were charged with the murder of stan cohen it wasn't until november 2nd Kristen, birthday uh, 1988 your third birthday mm-hmm. 1985 over there um, what are you trying to say sassy pants you're older than me <laughs> It's a rare thing in my life these days. (laughs) 
So it wasn't until November 2nd, 1988, so two and a half years after the murder, that Joyce Cohen was finally arrested and charged with Stan's murder. Her trial began in the fall of 1989, and uh, it started with the testimony of the first police officer to arrive on the murder scene, Officer Catherine Carter. She testified that Joyce was dazed and spacey, and she was sitting on the floor of her living room saying, I shouldn't have done it. Oh, that's pretty bad. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe she meant all that coke. <laughs> Could have been both. Um, another witness came forward and said that he had had a conversation with Joyce um, more than a year before Stanley was murdered that now carried a different connotation with him. His name was Frank Wheatley, and he was a supervisor at uh, SAC. Mm-hmm. And he said that he'd done coke with Joyce on multiple occasions. And on one occasion, they'd had uh, a frank discussion about the state of her marriage. She said that Stan was becoming boring to her. And she told him that she'd like to get divorced, but that she was afraid that she wouldn't get anything in the divorce. And so she wished she knew somebody that she could have kill him. Or she wished she could have the nerve to do it herself. Okay, I don't understand this. Now I see this in a different light. I mean, what what positive light do I you see I don't know what positive in? light you could take that in, but I could see maybe you're not taking it seriously because you're both all coked up. I guess, but damn. Yeah. Joyce Cohen had told basically everybody she yeah. ever talked to how unhappy she was with her marriage. And so it was just like witness after witness after witness who was like, yeah, she said she wanted him dead. Yeah, she said she was unhappy. Yeah, she said they hadn't had sex in two years. Like, oh, God. Yeah. Really bad. Too many friends. It's a problem. <laughs> <laughs> um, so her friend, country singer Tanya Tucker, she did not testify, but she did like a, a really long interview with detectives. And it was like a 46 page transcript. And that was actually put into court record, even though she did not testify. Right. And so... Um, she she said during that interview that she had always thought that Joyce seemed like kind of a pain-wracked person. Bottom line, she was extremely unhappy. She liked money. That's the only thing she liked. Wow. Yeah. So Joyce's defense attorney tried to discredit these prosecution witnesses, well, but there wasn't a lot of too many do. of them. Yeah. He was having a really hard time breaking any of this stuff down. And then came the actual evidence, the gunshot residue on the tissue that had her, you know, unmentionables. Um, and then also the delay and reporting of the shooting. Prosecutors maintained that they believed obviously that she had hired these men to do it and that the killers had accidentally dropped the murder weapon when they were fleeing from the house and that, uh, Joyce had seen that, picked it up with that tissue, dropped it into the fern garden, and then had taken that same tissue and blown her nose with it. And that's how gunpowder residue and hmm. her unmentionables got on it. Actually, unmentionables sounds so much dirtier than just not. I don't care. Stop I'm, saying. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Can't handle it. The star witness for the prosecution was none other than Frank Zuccarello. He got on the stand and he said she wanted her husband dead. 
the murder was supposed to look like a botched burglary. Well, you should have fucking taken something then. Yeah, I mean, we could give tips. Yes. Um, He was a good witness. He was lucid. He was believable. And he described everything from the planning meeting that he had with Joyce, um, which he said went down at a 7-Eleven in North Miami Beach. Wow. Um, And he gave uh, an like an exact account of how the job had went down. He said, while they made sure that Joyce was waiting on the ground floor, they went upstairs and killed her husband. Again, her defense attorney tried to spin him as this conniving uh, con who was trying to work a deal. Sure. And he got a deal. He ended up uh, testifying in exchange for not being charged with anything in this case. Wow. And getting his sentence for his robbery charge, like, reduced to five years. Whoa. Yeah. That's a hell of a deal. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. That's too good of a deal. It's a really good deal. Hmm. Mysterious, huh, Kristen? In what way? Hmm. I think we'll find out. Okay. Um, but as I said, he was a good witness and the jurors believed him. They deliberated for only like eight hours and they found Joyce Cohen guilty of first yeah, degree murder. Of course. The prosecution had put the death penalty on the table, but the jury recommended against it and the judge imposed a life sentence plus 15 years for conspiracy Hmm. the judge told joyce at the time of her sentencing you committed this crime for financial gain and you did it in a cold calculating manner so joyce went to prison like Five years later, in 1991, finally, the other two men who were implicated in the crime, Anthony uh, Caracciolo uh-huh. and Thomas Joslin, finally like agreed to a plea bargain. I don't know why their trials were so delayed, but they both took plea bargains um, and pled no contest to second-degree murder. And Caracciolo was believed to be the trigger man, and he got 40 years, and then Joslin got 30 years. I believe both of them are out of prison now. One, I believe, was released in 2006 and the other in 2010. So then, Joyce is doing her time in Florida prison. And then, in 1998, this Miami TV reporter comes forward and said that the lead investigator on the case told her confidentially in 1993 that he believed Joyce Cohen had acted alone in shooting her husband. What? And he said that he believed that Zuccarello made up the story. Just to get a deal. To get a deal. And that he had gotten all kinds of special treatment in order to come up with a believable story so that they could get the conviction because they wouldn't have been able to prove that she acted alone. There was not enough evidence. Wow. So during the time that he was telling all of his, his version of it, Zuccarello to investigators and prosecutors and all of that, he was rewarded for his cooperation by being checked out of jail 
60 times for police escorted trips to see the Miami Dolphins. What? To see his girlfriend and to get his haircut at his favorite salon. You are kidding me. And then he also gets, in exchange for his testimony, no charges in this case. And his robbery charges, his sentence to five years for. When he was facing like 25 years for it. Oh, this is bad. Really bad. So about that time in 1998 when this TV reporter came forward, she said that she had received this information. She had, so she waited five years to like, give this information because she they like the guilt had been just weighing on her and she really believed that there had been possibly some police corruption here and that for sure there were two men who were sitting in jail that had been wrongly convicted yeah oh so on those grounds joyce cohen filed an appeal Mm -hmm. but nothing ever happened with it and she remains in prison I think she probably killed her husband. Yeah, I think so. But I think that they would not have been able to convict her without this dude's clearly made up story. Yeah. I think it's definitely he was fed information. I I agree. And they were like, we know it's her, but we can't prove it. We need somebody. Oh. Oh, that sucks. Yeah. And those poor other guys. Yeah, because they never would they never would admit to anything. Uh-huh. And finally they ended up just taking those plea deals just to get it over with. That's ugh. That makes me sick. I know. Ugh. Yeah. So uh I think you I think you called it, Kristen. I think it was Joyce in the bedroom with the revolver. <laughs> yeah. I'm afraid so. And those poor, those two poor guys just got implicated in probably something they never had anything to do with. And also, his name was Stan, right? Yeah. Poor Stan. Poor Stan. Absolutely poor Stan. God. Yeah. All right, that's my murder mystery. Oh, my gosh. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Okay, are you ready for Nazi saboteurs? Yes. This is a crazy story. I had never heard of this. Okay. But, you know, obviously, we love FamousTrials.com. Yeah. He has put up some new stuff. I don't know when he put it up, yeah. but I, I scrolled through the website and I was like, Nazi saboteurs, I would remember this. Yeah. So, this comes from basically two places. Uh-huh. The Nazi saboteurs trial by Douglas O. Linder for FamousTrials.com. 
and the inside story of how a Nazi plot to sabotage the U.S. Well, do I want to? No, I can read this. The inside story of how a Nazi plot to sabotage the U.S. war effort was foiled by David A. Taylor for Smithsonian.com. Do you know how dumb I am? Yes. I was like, oh, I shouldn't read this this title because it shows that it was foiled. But obviously. (laughs) Here we go. Get it. It was late 1941 and Hitler was pissed. Mm-hmm. Germany had a bunch of spies working in the United States, and one of them had just been revealed as a double agent. Thanks to that double agent, the U.S. government captured and convicted 33 German spies. It made the Nazis look really stupid, <laughs> and Hitler was not a fan, not a fan of, looking of looking stupid. stupid. Yeah, imagine that. He wore those little shorts and those socks, though, so... <laughs> So you tell me. (laughs) Who's looking stupid, buddy? (laughs) So he said, that's it. We're starting up a new spy ring. Oh, God. That was. It's so strong. I'm sorry. You made it. (laughs) No, I love it. (laughs) You don't. (laughs) I'm so sorry. Can I breathe fire now? (laughs) (laughs) Well, Game of Thrones was very unsatisfying. So now Uh, you can be a literal dragon. Talk to me about it, Kristen. I know. We've already discussed it. We're upset. Okay. So he says, we're starting a new spy ring. And this one's going to be better than ever before. Excellent. Really excellent? No. <laughs> We're talking about Hitler. I know. <laughs> I know how it ends. <laughs> they called it Operation Pastorius. So that name paid homage to the founder of America's first German settlement. Mm-hmm. It was called Germantown. Ooh. Creative. Very creative. So the Nazis set to work trying to find men who were excellent sneaky sneaks and who would blend in in America. They started with ten guys and whittled it down to eight. Each of the eight men were carefully chosen. They'd all spent a lot of time living in the United States. They spoke perfect English. Uh, Two of them were actually U.S. citizens. Wow. And um, it says U.S. citizens. I think it means dual citizenship, but, you know, whatever. One had even served in the U.S. Army. They were between the ages of 22 and 39. (laughs) (laughs) Your eyes are watering. Seriously, may I add something to that? Uh. (laughs) Like more vodka? No, don't you dare put more vodka in there. No, it's perfect. No, it's not. I love taking a giant shot of vodka. (laughs) They all underwent a three-week training program led by a man named Walter Cap. Walter set up his little spy school at a farm. The place had a gym, two shooting ranges, a classroom, a lab, the works. Mm-hmm. Each day started with a workout. Mm. Then they did a three-hour session on how to use explosives. Great. In the afternoon, they practiced English and studied maps of America. They heard lectures about all the targets they'd need to hit. Places like railroads and industrial sites. They got fake names and fake backstories. To pass the time, they sang popular American songs like Oh Susanna. Don't you cry for me. (laughs) I come from Alabama with a banjo Banjo on my knee. knee. (laughs) 
Isn't that weird to think about a bunch of German dudes singing that over there? Anyway. (laughs) So everything they learned, they memorized. Mm -hmm. Finally, at the end of their training, they got their orders. They divide into two groups of four. One led by George Dash and the other led by Edward Curling. Are these their fake names or their real names? No, these are their real names. George Dash? Yeah. Pretty cool, huh? What? Sounds like George Glass. <laughs> that does sound, <laughs> sounds a little made up. Yeah. Once they arrived in America, they were supposed to make all hell break loose. They were supposed to blow up aluminum plants in Tennessee, Missouri, and New York. They were supposed to blow up a plant in Philly and wreak havoc on the canal locks in Cincinnati and St. Louis. They'd go after the Hellgate Bridge in New York, where so many people would be affected. They'd go after Newark Penn Station and a three-track patch of railroad known as Horseshoe Curve in Pennsylvania. They were even going to go after New York's water supply. Wow. The attack was going to be crazy. And if they could pull it off, the German government was going to reward them handsomely. Mm -hmm. They'd each get a ton of money. Plus, they wouldn't have to serve in the military. Mm -hmm. Which I would think, yeah, if you basically blow up America, I feel like you've done your part. What point are you trying to make? (laughs) Well, like, (laughs) that's your war effort, I guess, right? (laughs) Yeah. Then... After Germany won the war, ha, 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 ha. Uh, they could come back, get easy peasy jobs with high salaries for the rest of their lives. Great. Yeah, I'm real happy for these Nazis. Are yeah. You? yeah. So the guys do their three weeks of training. They say goodbye to their families. Then they went to Berlin, where they spent three days touring railroad yards, canal locks, aluminum plants. They learned everything they needed to know for their incredibly wide-reaching attack. Mm-hmm. Can you fucking imagine? No! My understanding was they had enough to do this for, like, two years. I mean, Holy it was going to shit. be, like, a very... I mean, just a horrible, horrible attack. Then they had a lovely banquet, headed off to France. And on May 26th, the first group loaded into a submarine... And headed for Long Island. Two days later... Nobody's going to notice the submarine coming up in Long Island? Let's find out. Okay. Two days later... I just think that's not the greatest way to get them over there. What do you think is the greatest way? Disney Cruise? (laughs) (laughs) I think they should just, like, go over, like, you know, on a plane. Like, a regular... Like, they should come in, like, they're... That's not very sneaky. That's not... not, they're, uh, They're supposed to be passing as Americans, right? Yeah. Uh-huh. So I don't, I'm, I'm an American. I've never docked my submarine in Long Island. But they are bringing enough Oh, you're right. they got to bring explosives with them. Yeah. They can't bring those on a plane. All right. All right. All right. Yeah. Okay. Okay. All right. I'm getting you now. Sorry. It's okay. How dare I? <laughs> <laughs> Why don't you understand Nazi attacks? I know. I did think, I did forget about the explosives. So two days later, the second group headed for Florida. Were they also at a submarine? <laughs> <laughs> Did you get bored in the middle of that question? <laughs> yes, they were also in a submarine. Submarine. <laughs> You're going to love this part. First group landed on the beach of Long Island. 
June 12th, 1941. Yes! Mm. It's my birthday! <gasps> I mentioned your birthday. You mentioned my birthday. Okay, it took a lot of self-control. When you mentioned my birthday, I was like, she's going to love this. That both of our birthdays get mentioned. <laughs> love birthdays. You do love birthdays. I do. I love birthdays. I'm excited for your birthday this year. Coming up. I know. Me and Norm. Same day. Yep. Same glorious day. That's right. Is that your favorite day of the year? No. That's rude. <laughs> no, I do love I'm that. I'm sorry. Your two favorite people on the planet were born that day. Yes, I just made <laughs> me one of your favorite people. You are one of my favorite people. Thank you. But you already knew that. Thanks. Mm-hmm. One of my favorite people, too. Good. That would be really awkward if like, I was like, you make the top ran. ten. <laughs> Honorable mention. Honorable mention. Kristen Caruso. So these guys arrive on the beach. Hey, it was dark out and they were. Oh, I was going to try to sing this script. So it's dark out. They're at the beginning of carrying out this horrible mission. Mm-hmm. And like right off the fucking bat, a member of the U.S. Coast Guard. Yeah, because walks this was right a terrible to- fucking plan. I don't see why you're saying it was so terrible. Uh, did it work? What's this Coast Guard guy's going to say? <laughs> the hand gesture you just gave me. That was a keep it going. Okay, okay. Prove me wrong. I will prove you wrong, actually. Okay. This man's name was John Cullen. He was 21 years old, and he was unarmed. Oh, shit. Did they kill him? Well, he was shocked as hell, first of all. Uh-huh. Because let me lay out what he saw. Uh-huh. Okay. <laughs> By this point, we'd been at war for like six months. Yeah. And all of a sudden, these four dudes show up in a raft on the beach of Long Island wearing Nazi uniforms. Why are they wearing Nazi uniforms? They're supposed to be fucking spies. I guess they skipped that day in spy school. It was only three weeks. so glad you're having this reaction because I about fell out of my chair when I read that but then when I got back in my chair I realized okay so sounds stupid sounds incredibly stupid it was actually very smart because if you are captured and don't give me that look if you are captured in a military uniform then you're a prisoner of war if you are captured and you're in plain clothes being a spy you get, like, executed for sure. So this was like, okay, we're going to show up. If we're caught right off the bat, we're mm. prisoners of war. All right. Yeah. But uh, poor John Cullen. Can you imagine? If no. Walks, you would shit your pants. You'd <laughs> yes. be like, oh, hey, guys. Yeah. So John ran up to these guys, and he's like, uh, what are you doing here? Oh my gosh. And they're like, oh, um, we're just here doing some <laughs> some fishing. Poor Brandy. She's she's struggling through the vodka. Um we're just trying to do some fishing. Uh we're a little lost. Yeah. <laughs> um, but but we're definitely fishermen. We're just lost fishermen. Oh my gosh. In Nazi uniforms. Yeah. John didn't buy it. And he said, okay, you guys need to follow me back to the station. And the leader of, yeah, I. Uh, no, thank you. Yeah. 
the leader of this group was George Dash. And he did most of the talking. And he was like, yeah, we're not, we're not going to do we're that. We're not going to follow you anywhere. Yeah. And um, your parents probably want to see you again, right? Why don't you run along? Yeah, I wouldn't want to kill you. Yeah. So then he pulls out this fat wad of cash. It's $260. Adjusted for inflation. 4.5K. Wow. Mm-hmm. It's yeah, good. it's pretty good fat wad of cash. Yeah. He puts it in John's hand and said, here, take this. Have a good time. Forget what you've seen here. By the way, my name is George John Davis. And you'll hear about me soon from Washington. Now, if you saw me again, you wouldn't recognize me, right? And John said, (laughs) no. No, I would not. Uh Uh-huh. So with that, John walked back to the station Meanwhile, the spies did not waste any time. They took their stuff, their explosives, their uniforms, their detonators, and they buried them so that they could come back and get them later after they'd done their recon Mm -hmm. work. Then they got on the train and headed into the city. Did they take their fucking uniforms off yet? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. They took those off. To anyone who saw them, they just looked like commuters. They were on, like, the 7 a.m. train. Mm Mm-hmm. They had their little newspapers and just acting like dudes headed to work. Yeah. Once they got into the city, two of them checked into one hotel, two of them checked into another. Meanwhile, John went back to the Coast Guard station, huffing and puffing, and he tells the guys what just happened. And they're like, holy shit. So they went back there where he said he'd run into some Nazis. And of course, by that point, no one was there. But they did see a bunch of footprints. And... An area of disturbed ground. So Mm -hmm. they start digging. Sure enough, there's like all this shit. Uh Then, on June 17th, the other group of Nazi spies washed up on the beach of Ponavedra, Florida, which was where my family went on vacation this past December. (coughs) Bless you. Yeah. Why'd you sneeze into your hand? Where the fuck else am I supposed to sneeze? Don't you know the new way of sneezing? No. You're supposed to sneeze into a cave like a bat. Yeah, because you don't want to get the germs all over your hands. Mm. You do, yeah. Clearly, your nieces and nephews have not discussed I'm this not with you. I'm going to learn from you. You just sneeze into my car. <laughs> Brandy, your Range Rover is my Kleenex. <laughs> How dare you? <laughs> I try to find the most expensive Kleenex around. So... They wash up on the beach where we frolicked and played this December. This time, there was no random Coast Guard dude to interrupt Uh them. So they just buried their stuff on the beach, took the Greyhound bus into Jacksonville, and then they split up. Two headed for Cincinnati, two headed for Chicago. Everything was looking great for the Nazis. Great. But there's something I haven't told you. What? Was one of them a double agent? More than one of them's a double agent. Who's the double agent? It's about the first group of spies, Brandy. Uh-huh. The evening that those guys paired off to their different hotels, George Dash and Ernest Berger shared a room together. So, th- actually, I don't know that they shared a room together. Anyway, they were paired together. Okay. So they went out to grab dinner together, and they started talking. And I'd love to know exactly how this conversation went, but the bottom line was that they discovered that both of them secretly hated Nazis. (gasps) How do you find that out? Because you you can't just 
the other guy that you hate Nazis. Um, this you is, think they like did like a look thing? Yeah, and like, then like a so. So, uh, okay, I, like on a scale of one to ten, like how into Hitler are you? I think the Fuhrer's uh, little pants are pretty stupid. <laughs> yeah, you start out like, yeah, yeah. You're like, can you believe those pants he's wearing? And you like, gradually oh. work your way up to genocide. <laughs> <laughs> so, they, yeah, they discover they both secretly hate Nazis. Oh my gosh. Oh, and the other rule, by the way, for them was if at any Don't point. Don't talk about Fight Club. <laughs> um, I mentioned Fight Club in this script. You do not. <laughs> I do. I do. So the other rule was that if at any point one of them started to get a little iffy about the mission, you kill them. Yeah, immediately. Ooh. So this was a hugely risky yeah. conversation. So George had lived in the United States from 1922 to 1939, 17 years, and he honestly loved America. He said he was really proud of it. And thought of America as his country. Mm-hmm. Ernest's relationship with the Nazi government was a little more complex. He used to be a Nazi, but in 1927, he left Germany for America, moved to the Midwest, joined the Wisconsin National Guard, and became a U.S. citizen. Eventually, he came back. Something went down when he came back to Germany. So FamousTrials.com says that he was basically on the wrong side of some kind of intra-party dispute. Mm -hmm. So he got charged with falsification of papers, went to prison for like a year and a half. And so as a result, he hated the Nazi party. He blamed them for sending him to to prison over nothing. He blamed them for his wife's miscarriage, which she had during all the stress of this. Mm -hmm. Um... Again, no word on whether he was equally bothered by the genocide. But anyway, he was really upset mm-hmm. about his own prison time. Okay. Wow. I'm a little bitchy. But anyway, the fact that they... Okay. I think we're allowed to be bitchy about genocide, Kristen. Okay. I just, you know, yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh, sticking with the tone of the last episode, genocide... Not good. Bad. Not good at it's all. Bad. A lot of people don't know. Yeah. A lot of Nazis don't know. A lot know. of Nazis don't know. Genocide is bad. <laughs> That's why we started this. That's right. So the Smithsonian Magazine article had this a little different. They told it more like when they got to the hotel, George immediately told Ernest, hey, I'm going to tell the FBI what's going on. You can either join no me way. or I'll kill you. I don't believe that. I don't really believe that one either. I think he felt it out more. Yeah. But I I really think George, I mean, George could have killed John, the Coast Guard guy. I just think he didn't want to kill anybody. So I I kind of believe that, too. I don't, I think the first story is the way to go. Yeah. So either way, it seemed like this was not a tough sell. Both of them were not into the Nazis. What's going on with you? I've lost my shoe. Well, you want to look down? (laughs) Look how far away it is. (laughs) How did that even happen? I don't know. I can barely reach it. <laughs> You've got it the wrong way. I've got it figured out. Do you? Got the toes of a monkey, Kristen. <laughs> <laughs> and you smell like one, too. Okay. okay. <laughs> that night, George called the FBI. George, ho- George hoped that if he told them about this plan, he might be allowed to stay in America. So he talked to some dude at the FBI. 
And he talked about the Nazi submarine and how he had important information. And then he said, I'll be in Washington in a few days to deliver this information personally to J. Edgar Hoover. Then he hung up the phone. Did he wear ladies' panties? What? J. Edgar Hoover? Did he? Didn't he wear ladies' panties? I don't know. Really? <laughs> I don't know. Maybe I should substantiate this. What are you going to Google? Hmm? Whoa. There's a lot of hits on that. Mm-hmm. Did J. Edgar Hoover... Hmm. Ew. Oh, God. I clicked on the wrong site. It is a, a common belief that he wore ladies panties like all the time or just occasionally yeah like under his suit wow frilly panties and garters it's a man with a lot of secrets take my take my panty knowledge seriously Kristen. how dare you question me what else you got (laughs) i don't know just comes up whenever you know it's pertinent okay it's not like at the forefront of my brain (laughs) (laughs) you came out with it pretty quickly so He hangs up the phone, and that agent was like, what the hell was that about? It seemed like a prank call. Or if not a prank call, a call from some weird dumbass who didn't know what he was talking about. But then the FBI got a call from the Coast Guard. And the Coast Guard was like, "Uh, yeah, crazy thing happened in Long Island today. On Long Island, in Long Island. Both is fine. Whatever. That's where it happened. So the FBI was like, both is fine. (laughs) Either is fine. Both are fine. Wow. Beautifully said. (laughs) So they're like, whoa, this is real. A few days later, George arrived in D.C. He checked into room 351 of the Mayflower Hotel, Mm. which is still around. You can Google it. Mayflower Hotel, Washington, D.C. It is gorgeous. Mm -hmm, mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Ooh, it is gorgeous. Mm-hmm. Ooh. Let's go there. Wouldn't it be cool if we could check into room 351? Yeah. Oh, it looks like they even have a nice little bar with just straight vodka for Brandy. Thank you. That's how how she likes it. it. That's how I take it. So he calls them up and he's like, hello, is J. Edgar Hoover in? And they're like, ha, 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 ha. Yeah, you don't just get to call up J. Edgar Hoover. So they're like, we're coming to you. We're going to interrogate you for two days. George told them everything he even handed them eighty two thousand dollars in cash that the german government had given him wow i didn't adjust it for inflation fuck what year is it 1941 hold on eighty two thousand dollars this drink is making me a real man <laughs> you some hair on your chest are you? i got some hair on my chest no that was already there wow how much 1.4 million. Whoa. Yeah, so he just hands it over to them. Over the course of two weeks, the U.S. government captured and arrested the seven other spies, which was not hard to do. George told them everything they mm-hmm. needed to know. He gave names, addresses, descriptors, and Ernest gave information to. Mm-hmm. Another thing I read said that George went off to Washington and he left Ernest in charge of like making sure the other guys stayed. Yeah you know, kind of within his reach Mm -hmm. so that they could take this whole operation down. So essentially, George, with some help from Ernest, handed the U.S. government their whole mission on a silver platter. Mm -hmm. 
The story hit the media, and boy, was it great. The FBI were heroes. Thanks to all of their very hard work and their all-known knowing psychic powers, they had seized eight Nazi saboteurs. Yes, Brandy. Yes, because of their very hard no, work. No, it's yes, cause because of George been, Dash. No, because they've been so good at their jobs. Oh, poor George Dash. Mm-hmm. The public learned that Nazi spies had snuck into the United States with plans to blow shit up for the next two years. But the FBI stopped them before they could carry out their dastardly deeds. Brandy, it's all the FBI. They're the ones who are the heroes here. If you want a hero, it's J. Edgar Hoover and his little frilly panties. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. How did they do it? Because George Dash told them everything. No, super secret FBI work. Randy, you're not sophisticated enough to know the real story. If we told you the real story. They're going to charge him with espionage, aren't they? And he's going to be sentenced to death. So here's here's the real story. Kristen. Brandy. Here's the real story. It was was all. Give me a wink if I'm correct. It was all super hard work from the FBI. (laughs) And you know, yes. Kristen, like, you had like a weird blinky thing. I don't know if it was a wink or not, guys. You know, hey, George Dash did help. Uh, no! George Dash did everything. I'm going to read to you from a Washington Post article from that time period. They said that he cooperated with United States officials in procuring evidence against the others. Yeah, not. Oh, I am calling you up. I am telling you. I'm telling you everything. Espionage. Brandy, you might want to sip on more of that vodka. Yeah. (laughs) Carry on. Am I gonna get pissed? I'm gonna get pissed. I'm already pissed. So yeah. Fuck. Needless to say, the FBI loved all the positive press they were getting. And so did the rest of the government. <laughs> I'm so sorry. Okay, show me how, like, how much vodka did you put in this fucking Okay, thing. so the amount you have right now, mm-hmm. that's how much vodka was in there. No way! I'm serious, it was a lot of vodka. I went up three that's rounds. That's a lot! Norman told me it wasn't. He lied. <laughs> <laughs> I'm very sorry. You gave me three fingers of vodka. (laughs) Okay, here's the problem. I buy my vodka from Costco, and if I have, I have no control over that bottle once it gets a gluggin. A (laughs) gluggin. Woo! (laughs) The good news is you can sleep on my lovely sofa with peanut peanut by your side. Peanut will cuddle with me. So. The FBI was loving all the positive press they were getting. I'm sure they were. So did the rest of the government. Here we were at war with Germany, and we had this uplifting story about how awesome we were at stopping bad things from happening to Mm -hmm. us. The fact that it wasn't super true, meh, minor details. Except those weren't minor details. No, it's a huge fucking detail. Uh Uh-huh. And pretty soon, all these guys were going to go to trial, and the truth was going to come out at trial. Everyone would learn two things. 
that these guys were only caught because George gave them all up, mm-hmm. and that if George hadn't spoken up, spoken up, those attacks or could <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> those attacks could have gone off without a hitch. I mean, those guys landed in Florida. They were just like, yeah, no one knew. Yeah, you know. Reality was much scarier than the heroic fiction uh-huh. that filled our newspapers. President Roosevelt was in a tight spot. If this case went to federal district court, the truth would come out. And maybe the guys wouldn't get much of a punishment. They were being charged with sabotage. But had they really committed sabotage yet? No! He wasn't even 100% sure that they could prove an attempt to commit sabotage. I think he probably could, but he said it was... Prosecutors could definitely get them on violating immigration laws, but that's like maybe two years. Mm -hmm. Roosevelt wanted to maintain the narrative that was playing out in the press, and he wanted the eight spies to get the death penalty. I knew it! On July 2nd, 1942, he ordered a military tribunal, (gasps) which came with several advantages. Yeah. First of all, that shit is secret as hell. Yep. Second. Operates under a veil of secrecy. Mm-hmm. Much like IHOP. <laughs> the, the pancake. Church, not the pancake house. <laughs> I don't know. I think some of their stuff is a little mysterious. <laughs> Definitely questionable. <laughs> Second, they don't drag their feet at all. Everything's super fast. And third, they don't give out piddly little two-year sentences. Uh-uh. They're like, hang them tomorrow. Yeah. <gasps> This was a super rare move. The last time anyone had called for a military tribunal was when Lincoln was assassinated. Holy shit. Yeah, this this was rare, a little weird, but we were at war, Mm -hmm. so Roosevelt felt like he could get away with it. Here were the rules for the tribunal. It would consist of seven military officers. They could make their own rules. And ultimately, they didn't have to reach a unanimous decision. Mm -hmm. Two-thirds of the group Mm -hmm. could make the final decision. And by final, I mean, like, final, Final. all caps, because there's no appeals. Yeah. Only President Roosevelt could review the decision if he wanted to. You okay? Have you always had two of those tables? No. I noticed you kept looking at them. (laughs) It's way too many tables in this room. (laughs) A lot of tables. I feel like you're cloning. Are you cloning tables? (laughs) Yes. That makes two of us. (laughs) Okay. Do you want to tell the freaking dad joke that Norman told? I laughed so hard. You really did. Yeah. Yeah. So. (laughs) Oh, no. You're laughing. I can't even remember it. So, okay. We were over at Brandy's house for movie night this weekend. And Norman says the dumbest joke of all time. He goes, hey. You know, Kristen was telling me that she doesn't know how cloning works. And you came in from the kitchen and you were like, what? What? And he says, and I was like, that makes two of us. (laughs) You about died. You laughed so hard that your dog cried. (laughs) My dog always cries when I laugh. He's concerned I'm injured. It's <laughs> weird. I think that Barker left a review on the podcast. <laughs> he did. 
So oh, okay. <laughs> Military tribunal. Yeah. Super secret. Oh, scary. Sorry. The oh. reason I have more tables in here because we had the Mother's Day celebration over here, mm-hmm. and um, actually a mildly funny story. So I brought up all these extra tables to put food out and stuff, but I also took one of those tables over there, put them on the end of my dining room table for, you know, more seating, put a tablecloth over the whole thing. Mm -hmm. Little did my father know that that table over there isn't quite as wide as the dining room table, so he loaded up an entire plate of food. uh, And then (laughs) said... Of course, it fell all over him. Classic DP. <laughs> so I I realized I looked like a total asshole because <laughs> you're like, Dad. No, no. You just start laughing. I laughed so hard because okay, so I and I made like sausage brunch. So I mean, it yeah. was an ooey gooey mess, and it was just all down his leg, and he was pissed. <laughs> And I just started laughing so hard. I think partly because sometimes my dad cracks me up because his reactions are so different from my what reaction. your reactions would be, yeah. Like, if I were at somebody's house and I spilled food all over myself, I think I'd be really embarrassed. <laughs> <laughs> so, for him to be annoyed was just... <laughs> he was like, well, I didn't know that there was some secret small table. <laughs> Sausage running down. His How are you preparing your sausage? <laughs> Haven't you ever had sausage brunch? It's delicious. Mad. He was What's the fucking sausage so, so it's it's so Why are you acting like that to food everyone is mad? I, <laughs> because I feel like surely <laughs> Okay, everyone has had it. Let me explain. So you take like stuffing. Uh-huh. And then you mix up, like, cheese and eggs mm-hmm. and, like, cream and mushroom soup. This is such a Midwest dish. You do spicy sausage on top. Mm-hmm. You bake it in the oven. It's delicious. I've never heard of that. I'll make it sometime. Please it's amazing. Do. And then it's I won't so- let it run down my leg. <laughs> <laughs> it tastes best when you drop it into your lap. <laughs> and then you get mad at the host. <laughs> I thought I really didn't think it was that hard to see that the table underneath was like a little smaller. You know what? This won't be a problem at my new big house. There will be plenty of room for everyone. Okay. Is sausage brunch not a thing people know about? Okay, see, for the longest time, I thought it was, like, my family recipe. I think it is. But no, no, then 
I started dating Norman, yeah. and I spent Christmas with them one time, and they had sausage brunch. And I was like, oh, this is a thing that everyone has. Or maybe Norman and I were meant to be. <sighs> mm. I mean, I would surely hope we're meant to be if we're married. Yeah, but, you know. I hope so. <laughs> Norman's a good guy. I mean, we almost got divorced over... Over <laughs> edibles and pizza. <laughs> okay, uh... This this episode, this is an After Dark episode. We can't, I mean, it's not our fault. <laughs> I think it's kind of our fault that it's this late After Dark and that I I should never be in charge of pouring drinks. <laughs> Did I tell you about the time that Jay and I got my grandma drunk? No! <laughs> so my brother-in-law, Jay, Jay and I both like strong... Swims naked in the lake. <laughs> Fake news turns out. That's another episode. <laughs> That's an old story. You'll have to go hunt that one out. I have no idea what episode it's from. So we both like strong drinks. And we were in charge of making the margaritas for like Memorial Day one one summer. So we were making the margaritas and we were both tasting them. And we were like, yeah, this is great. This is great. Mm-hmm. You know, we're so awesome at making margaritas. So we served everybody the margaritas grandma starts drinking hers and everyone kind of commented on how strong they were but you know whatever we thought we were awesome (sighs) grandma got lit (laughs) well then it was time to for everyone to stand up and go over to the table grandma took a little tumble oh my god (laughs) she was okay (laughs) it was like oh oh shit i blame jay i do too yeah yeah you've never experienced a strong beverage at my house so (laughs) So, right away, the tribunal was like, the number one rule of Fight Club is, we don't talk about Fight Club. (laughs) They decided to make the whole thing a secret. Yeah. The prosecution was led by Attorney General Francis Biddle, and some other dude whose name I did not write down. When asked why... Everybody drink. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, should we talk about that, too? Yeah, so someone on our Reddit page did, like, a live commenting while they were listening to the episode, and they um, suggested a drinking game where every time Kristen says, now, I didn't put this in my notes, but... <laughs> but here we go. <laughs> and oh, the irony, because I ended up saying it twice, twice in, in that, that episode. Yeah. <laughs> my favorite part of that whole thing was they started it off with, like, I'm going to be live, you know... Yeah, t- live commenting this. I'm sure no one will read this. So, Kristen, Norm, and I were at dinner... And yes. we read it aloud and loved every minute of it. <laughs> I think you and I loved it more than Norm did. I think Norm checked his email. Oh, we didn't. Freaking Norm. Kids <sighs> these days. Kids these days. That's right. Gamers. Ugh. <laughs> <laughs> Careful. That's like all of our audience. <laughs> uh, gee, I can't imagine why I keep losing no my kidding. place. Okay. Prosecution. Frank Biddle. Oh, how did you... Francis Very Biddle. Nice. Very nice. Sorry. I am impressed. I bet his friends called him Frank. Of course they did. Yeah. But I'm just saying, like, you tell your stories, and I can never keep anyone's <laughs> name straight. I usually get the first letter, right. and that's it. Anyway, so the prosecution released a statement. It read, we do not propose to tell our enemies the answers to questions which are puzzling them. So they, they're they acting like, we have to keep this a secret because, mm-hmm. you know, it was such good intelligence work. And if yeah. the Nazis found out that we had dolphins with little ray guns on them or <laughs> So that's... I want to get sharks with freaking laser beams on their heads. <laughs> Thank you. 
All eight of the men pled not guilty. Three military officers acted as their defense attorneys. George got one, and the rest got two others. Almost as soon as the trial began, the defense attorney... The defense attorney, I'm sorry. Defense attorney Colonel Kenneth Royal said that Roosevelt's decision to move this trial into a military tribunal was unconstitutional. I think a the in there would have been just fine, Really? Yeah. Okay, you know what? You know what, what was really throwing me off? What? Sometimes, and this is very embarrassing, I will read the word colonel as spelled. <laughs> and I saw the word, and I thought, don't do it, don't do it. Don't do it. I even like when I was running through it today, I was like, I better not Colonel. mess up. <laughs> and the colonel stood up. <laughs> so he said. Don't we all do that though? Like, what, don't you. Huh. Maybe this is embarrassing. No, say it. Don't you like when you read Wednesday? Don't you like. Say Wednesday? Wednesday? I feel like some words yes, some words yeah. no. But colonel is like one that I really. I mean, I've got to be concentrating. <laughs> So he said, this belongs in federal district court, and we all know it. Mm -hmm. The prosecution acted like so offended that he would even say this. They were like, how dare you, as a military man, question the orders of the commander in chief? Uh And it's like, oh, okay, so we're all military. We can't question anything. That's Uh great. But the defense pressed on. Colonel Kenneth... (laughs) Was like, you know, it doesn't make sense for a bunch of military officers to be in charge of this verdict. He basically said it could create like a conflict of interest because if the evidence was more favorable to the defendants, the jury might find it difficult or embarrassing to convict them. I gotcha. Or to not convict them. Yeah, I I have jury in quotation marks here. You didn't do air quotes, so I didn't, how was I to know that? I thought I said jury, like I was really I, like, I thought the vodka was hitting you. <laughs> <laughs> that too. I'm very hot. Are you hot? Uh, no. Just... I'm, I mean like sexy though. I'm... <laughs> <laughs> You're just going to hold that up for the rest Yeah, of the I really thing? need like a hair tie. Do you mind if I do it? Okay. Get it. I mean, why are you looking over there like you've got all I'm the wonder, hair ties? I'm wondering if I've got a hair tie in here, Missy. No. I have a cat. <laughs> Alright, I'm back. Guess who's back? Back again. Shady's back. Tell a friend. Guess who's back. Guess who's back. Guess who's back. Guess who's back. No no no. Oh, oh no. Should that be left in? I yeah, feel like definitely. half this episode should be <laughs> cut. cut out. Okay. Um but the argument didn't work. Should I back up? <laughs> no. Just right there. But the argument didn't work. What argument? I don't know. That this should go to federal court. Yeah. That was the argument. Very good, Brandy. <laughs> the days dragged on. At one point, George's defense attorney announced that he wanted to read a document out loud. It was a statement from George. It was 254 pages, and it was single-spaced. Single-spaced? 254 pages. He wanted to read that aloud? And he did. And it took two days. And the attorney... No! Yes, the attorney general was so pissed that he just left. I was going to say, that's like a filibuster. Yeah, I mean, it's ridiculous. Each day at the end of the trial, the the tribunal would provide the media with a very brief summary of what happened that day. Because, you know, 
They wanted to be transparent. Transparency. (laughs) Oh no. I will euthanasia you. (laughs) Right up there on the projector. (laughs) Use a visa V's marker (laughs) Finally, twelve days into the trial, the defense was like, This is bullshit. I'm going I'm gonna go to federal court and we're gonna challenge whether the president was right to have called this military Uh tribunal. Quick side note. The only reason that Kenneth did that was because President Roosevelt had basically said he could. Uh-huh. FDR was like, sure, if you want to question my authority, that's totally yeah. fine. But the only reason that Roosevelt said that was because the attorney general had said, look, Roosevelt, if you don't act like you're okay with having your authority questioned, mm-hmm. then it's going to look like these German dudes are not getting a fair yeah. trial. And, you know, in America, we get fair trials. That's right. So defense attorney Kenneth Royal was all fired up. At this point, it was the summertime, and the weather was hot. You could jump right in. <laughs> <laughs> and the Supreme Court... And the weather's hot. hot. Yeah, see, I don't know the... Yeah. hit the spot? Sure. Surely that's not the <laughs> So the Supreme Court wasn't in session, so he went to a few of the justices individually... And this part is kind of long and boring, so, you know, la, 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 What you need to know is that the court ultimately said, yes, military tribunal is fine. Okay. Carry on. Back to the trial. George and Ernest both testified that they never planned on committing sabotage. Mm -hmm. They said they only participated in spy school and all that crap. To get the intel. No, they said they just wanted to get back to the United States. Oh. They were just going to, like, show up. Yeah. And hang out. Okay. But the prosecution was like, "Mm, nice try. If you love America so much, why did you go back to Germany in the first place? Hmm. The prosecution also downplayed the the role. It's the vodka. (laughs) The prosecution also downplayed. (laughs) Oh, no. (laughs) Oh, no. Did they downploy the rail? (laughs) (laughs) The prosecution also downplayed the role that George had played. Mm -hmm. Like a champ. Thank you. Spoken like a professional speaker. (laughs) (laughs) This is why I have a podcast. (laughs) So they downplayed his role helping the FBI catch all his fellow saboteurs. Mm -hmm. They said that if he'd really wanted to be helpful, he would have immediately gone to the FBI as soon as he landed on Long Island. He would have told them everything right away before that second submarine arrived on the Florida coast. Hmm. No. I agree. I think that's such bullshit. That is bullshit. Huh. I mean, if the rule is... You murder anyone who looks like they're getting a little iffy yeah. about the plan. Like, you have to wait till you're Absolutely. alone. Absolutely. Yeah, I, uh-uh. I don't buy it. So the defendants had a variety of reasons for pleading not guilty. George and Ernest said that they never wanted to commit sabotage. A few of the other guys said that they did, that they had fully planned to commit sabotage. But then they came to America... And they liked it so much mm. that they decided not to commit sabotage after all. Mm. Which I think sounds like bullshit. Yeah, a bunch of malarkey. 
But I mean, that's really your only card you can yeah, play. Yeah, exactly. Like, oh, this is such a beautiful so country. You this have amazing country. What is that sausage brunch? We don't have in Europe. <laughs> it's so good. I need it off my pants. Oh my gosh. <laughs> All the guys basically said that they volunteered for their mission, not because they necessarily wanted to be part of it, but because they knew that they'd be in huge trouble if they didn't. During the defense's closing arguments, Kenneth made a big case for George and Ernest. He said they never even wanted to commit sabotage. Mm -hmm. They loved America. They wanted to live here and be part of this country. And above all... Please remember that none of these men actually hurt anybody. They didn't do anything. He said that sentencing them to death would be excessive. He said, uh, yeah. they did not hurt anybody. They did not blow up anything. George's attorney, Carl, Carl Reistein, talked about the fact that George had taken it. pronounced Carl. <laughs> <laughs> Damn it, Brandy. <laughs> I thought I did such a good job just sailing past it. I was like, I'll cut that for sure. Now everyone knows that I saw a four-letter word and went, <laughs> So he's like, George came to the FBI, told, told them yeah. everything he knew. Like, come on. None of this would be possible without him. He made fun of the prosecution's argument that George should have contacted the FBI sooner. Carl was like, what difference would that have made? Yeah. Nothing happened. Yeah. In their closing argument, the prosecution pushed hard for the death penalty. This was all about sending a message to our enemies. Mm -hmm. We had to let them know that we weren't softies. We had to show them we were rock hard. Rock hard. (laughs) And please... Don't buy any of their sob stories. The freaking Nazis didn't send over eight morons who had no intention of going through with this at all. That, by the way, is a quote. Yeah. They just got here, and they were afraid they'd get caught. That's why they came forward. Mm. Hmm. The tribunal deliberated for two days. They found the men guilty. Guilty, of course. And sentenced all of them to death. Of course they did. After that verdict, President Roosevelt met with the prosecutors, and they agreed that George and Ernest shouldn't get the death penalty. Mm -hmm. George was given 30 years, and Ernest got life in prison. Goodness gracious. What are your thoughts? That that's ridiculous, because it wouldn't have been possible had they not come forward. Who knows what would have happened? Yeah, I mean, what's amazing to me, hearing that list, is like, my God, if they'd done even one of those yeah. things, that would have been terrible. Yeah. I I don't know whether I should say this, but part of me feels like George should have gotten, like, the key to the city or something. I was going to so, say, like, George should have gotten a parade! Yes! I mean, my God! That's he the gratitude. from happening! Yeah. Yeah. Instead, he gets 30 years in prison. Wow. So their reasoning was George and Ernest did help the FBI, and maybe they went, if they went easy on those guys, then other saboteurs might do the same thing. I, I fucking doubt it. Yeah. Right? 
On August 8th, the six men went to the electric chair. This sounds really gross. So there was only one electric chair, and it took about 15 minutes. Psych- yeah, cycle them through. Them through. Yeah, I know, right? Gross. They were buried in unmarked graves, much like the victims of the Holocaust. In 1948, when George and Ernest had served just six years of their sentences, President Harry Truman pardoned them. <gasps> but it was not a full pardon. Mm-hmm. It was like a pardon with strings. Yeah. big deal hi boo you guys boo is down here drinking water boo never comes down boo does not reveal herself to company Mm -mm. she's a private dancer (laughs) (laughs) i guess that's a gross thing to say about a cat oh i was gonna make a pussy joke but too classy. Yeah. This this podcast, we've That's done such right. a good job keeping it really classy. We keep it super classy. Uh-huh. That's one thing that can be said about <laughs> <laughs> So, George and Ernest were sent to what was then West Germany. The locals hated right, them. Yeah. Um, I believe the story was that George and his wife, like... Did you not put it in your notes? I didn't put it in my notes. <laughs> but the story was that George and his wife, like, they had a little business going. Then, like, a local newspaper mm-hmm. found out, told the story, and they, like, had to grab what they yeah, could and run out of town. Yeah, they would not be popular. Over the years, George petitioned the U.S. government for a full pardon. He wanted to come back to the United States because, obviously, uh, everyone hated him over there. Yeah. But every time, J. Edgar Hoover blocked his requests wow here's a crazy story so those six nazi spies were buried in unmarked graves Mm -hmm. well one day a bunch of people who worked for the power company Mm -hmm. were walking through some brush in southwest Uh washington dc when they saw something strange Uh uh-huh it was a big slab of granite. Mm-hmm. They walked over to it, looked at it, and wouldn't you fucking know it, it was a memorial for Nazis. What? It read, In memory of agents of the German Abwehr, whatever, executed... I'm sorry, what? It's A-B-W-E-H-R. You tell me how to pronounce that. I don't know. I'm not even going to try. Executed August 8th, 1942. Then it listed all their stupid names. And then at the very end of this, you know, big rectangular Mm -hmm. piece of stone, it read, donated by the NSWPP. National Socialist White People's Party. Wow. Neat. Yeah. So the National Park Service was pretty stunned. Oh, yeah. Not impressed. They did some research, and, like, based on that name, they believed that that memorial had been there for decades. Wow. Like, probably since maybe early 70s, uh-huh. maybe 60s. So in 2010, they took a forklift out to the site and took the Nazi memorial away. It's now sitting in a storage facility in Maryland. Wow. When asked, the National Park Service guy said, We certainly did not want to be hosting a site for midnight rituals on Hitler's birthday. (laughs) (laughs) And that's the story of the Nazi saboteurs. Wow. 420. Yeah, I know. Hitler's birthday. Yeah. 
gross. That story was crazy. It's it's you know it's one of those things. It's uplifting in that the only people who were harmed were Nazis. Yeah, that's great in my book. But the way the way the U.S. government handled that was yeah. so shitty. Oh yeah, so shitty. Yeah. Hmm. Very interesting. Had never heard of it. Yeah, I hadn't yeah. either. Mm-mm. I don't. I mean, I'm glad that they weren't. The two weren't executed because I really believe that they stopped something from happening. Yeah, absolutely. Hmm. All right, Missy, you got show notes. No, we don't have time for fucking show notes, Kristen. Oh. It's fucking. Let's go to court after dark. We told 87 stories during this episode. <laughs> I think it must be three hours long by this point. It's almost tomorrow. I've got to go to bed. Wow. Thank you for tuning in, folks. You know what to do. Find us on social media. We're on Instagram. We're on Twitter. We're on Reddit. We're on Facebook. We're on YouTube. Uh, then head over oh, to iTunes. Oh, oh, my God. I'm so sorry. I forgot to do one thing. I'm so sorry. Do it. Okay. It's... You know that statement that George made that was 254 pages. You your fucking face! I just want to read it real quick, Brandy. You asshole! You asshole! Don't worry, it's single spaced. We're gonna Great. be fine. Yeah, we done next Thursday. <laughs> anyway, hey, if you liked, let's go to court after dark. Mm. Head on over to our iTunes. Leave us a rating. Leave us a review. And then you know, join us next week when we'll be experts on two whole new topics. Podcast adjourned. And now for a note about our process. I read a bunch of stuff, then regurgitate it all back up in my very limited vocabulary. And I copy and paste from the best sources on the web, and sometimes Wikipedia. So we owe a huge thank you to the real experts. For this episode, I got my info from the Nazi Saboteurs Trial by Douglas O. Linder for FamousTrials.com, the inside story of how a Nazi plot to sabotage the U.S. war effort was foiled by David A. Taylor for Smithsonian.com, and an article from the Washington Post. And I got my info from an article by David Kradicek for the Crime Library, as well as articles for the L.A. Times and the Miami Herald. For a full list of our sources, visit lgtcpodcast.com. Any errors are, of course, ours, but please don't take our word for it. Go read their stuff. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply.